Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is wherever you are today. I'm Ali Amagasu. I'm still at KubeCon, and I'm excited this afternoon to be talking to Lee Kapili and John Slifka of Beatport. Hey, gentlemen. How are you doing? Great, great. Thanks so much for being on the show. I feel lucky because I nabbed you before you even got to do your talk. Yeah. In a way, that's a bummer because I don't have the questions that would flow naturally from having seen it. But uh, I did read your abstract, and I thought you had an interesting story that would be um, something that uh, our listeners might want to might want to learn about. So, first off, I, I did mention you work for Beatport. Why don't you guys tell me what Beatport is, what it does, why it exists? You want to take this one? Yeah, sure. Um, so, Beatport is a kind of a Netflix story style of a company. You know, maybe ten years ago, most DJs we used CDs. Or, or maybe even vinyl, you know, still trucking around boxes of things to gigs. And the shift to digital media was a big thing that, you know, you remember iTunes? I well, do indeed. Today, that's still what Beatport is. We're, we're a website version of iTunes, specifically for electronic music. And we serve DJs. And uh, DJs love our product if you, you know, play every Saturday or Thursday uh, at, as a resident of, at a club. You probably buy your music from our platform. Uh, our music, you know, comes analyzed with BPM and key information that you need to perform and really serve your audience. And uh, we cater all of our music. We've got whole teams of people that you know are able to identify. Oh, this is house or this is garage. And yeah, I think we have something like twenty or thirty different genres on our website. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You're a DJ. Yeah. What's your what's your perspective? Um, yeah, that? no, I think I think the the value and the reason that um, you know DJs like to have their music, they like to own it uh, without any digital rights and things like that. Um, they like to contextualize their music um, more so than somebody who was using iTunes in 2004 or 2005. Um, they want to know things that are related to performance. Like okay, I still use iTunes for the yeah. record. Because yeah, yeah. I, I, well, you know, it's um, a, a lot of my colleagues and stuff. When we're just listening to music on the go now, everything's great. Yeah. So um, we are sort of borrowing these and constantly from the cloud. Um, but I think that the the cool thing that Beatport does is is kind of we play into this performance aspect of, of DJing, which is like what you know what song what key is a song in. And where we where can we go with that? What's harmonic in this context? Um, what tempo is the song at? Right, like this is all important stuff. And you can kind of think of it as like navigating a graph, right? Like we want to be able to uh, mirror that. Like when you're in a record store, how do you decide like what record's going to go well with what, right? And I think we're just accelerating that feedback loop now um, because we're able to process information faster. Um, so I think that's really interesting um, for DJs. So it's not just what I was imagining was that the, the quality was simply too low on iTunes. Is it a quality issue at all, or is it really about the way you're cataloging this music and allowing people to access it? I, I think the, the cataloging thing is the bigger story. But yeah, absolutely. Um, we provide tons of different formats, um, multiple versions of lossless formats, as well as lossy types of compression. Um, and it just depends on what you need, right? Yeah, you can uh, buy FLAC and AVE. Uh, off of iTunes, but uh, we we provide several different container formats, uh, different pieces of hardware and software need different kinds of files. DJs just have their preferences as well. I think this sounds better, you know, or I just have had problems with that before. Uh, and also, we enrich the song with information that typically isn't on there. Uh, that's a value of the business. 
So we run part of our business logic is adding key information to songs, uh, which typically doesn't come on a on a piece of music when you first buy it. So just literally each each music file. Mm -hmm. What are you adding on there? What 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 information are you adding? Is it that kind of cataloging? That, that yeah, cataloging. Are you tagging it in a way um, that it'll, it'll come up? Yeah, uh, I think genre is a big one for DJs, and it's kind of a, a uh, kind of a sticky subject as to how to classify music. Um, but if you have something like a curation team that that knows that music really well, I think it helps people search for things, right? Like, uh, I think that's an important part of it as well. Um, Key is really big. Um, <laughs> a lot of the work that we're actually talking about, we walked our whole catalog uh, and did reanalysis of every single asset uh, that we own and sell to people uh, in order to make the key information more accurate. That's a really big value add for our customers. Wow. And how got long, some great partners. How long has this, this company been around? Uh, it's been 10, 13 years. Since 2004. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so the, you know, the burning question, of course, since we're at KubeCon, is, is where does Kubernetes come into all this? Uh, I'm sure there's a number of technologies. Oh, maybe there isn't. Maybe I, I would assume there are a number of technologies or approaches you could take to do what you need to do to get this music to the DJs or to make it accessible. So, what are you going to be talking about in your uh, presentation tomorrow? And uh, and and again, yeah, why Kubernetes? What's it What's it doing for you? How are you using it? Uh, our presentation tomorrow. Uh, kind of our goal is to really share our our story. Uh, we had a business problem. Uh, and some constraints and things that, some resources that we had to use. And the business problem was, you know, we've got an entire catalog of music in several formats, uh, but we don't have the format that we need for some new products that we have coming down the line. Uh, and there's actually multiple formats that are on our timeline uh, to basically convert the entire catalog into. So we need to basically take about, you know, we're approaching a petabyte of music. Yep. And yeah, we need to take all of that music and take all of the raw and convert it into formats that are either lossy or can be, say, you know, piped over the internet uh, and, you know, directly to a device. And um, we, we have to store all of that and have it ready on demand in the cloud uh, to serve a DJ and their needs in, you know, Several like highly available and uh, fun formats, but um, we had a bunch of data center hardware that we had kind of gotten through an acquisition of a company called Pulse Locker that does some streaming and uh, encryption technologies. And uh, these servers are rather old, and we had another pool of servers in our data center that were actually decommissioned. You know, missing a RAM slot. You know, or the uh, access card, basically the the console for the server it doesn't even boot, you know. And we pulled all of these servers into a Kubernetes cluster, and we're able to prototype a workload before all of that work was done on GKE. So in the cloud, we prototyped the ability to run batch encoding um, and create these large amounts of assets um, with using Google storage buckets and a Kubernetes engine. And then we took that same workload and backed it with NFS and these rather old and like deprecated servers, and we ran that same workload at a slower pace in our data center. Uh, and we're able to repurpose that hardware at a very low cost um, in a fairly reliable way, even though servers were dying on us you know, every week. Did you have somebody, had someone else done this? Was there somebody else whose instructions you were following, you know, or, or did you guys kind of have to blaze the trail? So that was some of the inspiration for why we submitted this talk, huh, John? 
Yeah, um, I mean, it's, you know, encoding music is not a, a super complicated problem. Um, there's plenty of different ways to do it. Um, the, the general way in the past has been to have long-running systems that pull messages off and say, okay, I need to encode this. Uh, we tried to, to experiment with this new approach, and it seemed to work uh, just as good, if not better, uh, than what we've been doing in the past. Um, so we're, we've gone from using long-running processes that are kind of listening for messages to running uh, ephemeral types of workloads where we encode something uh, with all of the required assets, and then we throw it away. So I think that's that was the interesting part of Kubernetes, and it allowed us to kind of scale up and down uh, a lot more easy. It, it was difficult in the beginning uh, to find people with a similar story. Uh, I, there was a blog post, I think, by the team at CircleCI uh, where they talk about how they moved some customer-facing uh, job-type workloads to Kubernetes pods. And that kind of gave us a little bit of faith as we were early on designing the system. Um, but overall, there's not a lot of writing um, out available in, in the public space about keeping track of your workloads and running large batches of things you know, for short periods of time in a Kubernetes cluster. Normally, we hear about people running microservices, which are you know, long-running daemons. You know, these processes sit around for a while, and they always need to be running. They have a declared state for their entire lives. And um, that's not you know, how encoding works. Uh, it's a, just a different workload. You know, encoding a song, you know, it might take 20 seconds, it might take 50 minutes, and after you're done, you know, um, you that workload's done. Like the the compute goes away, and you need to interpret the results and put them somewhere. And uh, some of those problem-solving techniques and how we uh, got observability into the system and like actually watching what it was doing uh, are some of the topics of our talk. Great. Great. Do you want to talk about those a little bit? I'd love to hear what problems you ran into. I don't know if that's what you're getting to. When you said problem, I you know, I assume that it didn't just go perfectly seamlessly. Uh, but what were the challenges you were up against? And also, I'm wondering, you guys are here representing Bport, but I have to assume there's a bigger team that's been involved in this. Yeah, I mean, we've got you know maybe another two engineers who worked on this product with us uh, in the beginning. It's, right. Yeah, because um, this you know we we. You know, we, we've been working on lots of different projects over the last year. Um, and when the infrastructure team started on this, I think we were at three people. Um, now the infrastructure has doubled in size. Infrastructure team has doubled in size to, to six people. Um, in our Denver office, I think we have something like 16 engineers total. So we're still not a massive uh, technology group. Uh, but, but that's kind of, um, I think that's part of, why we need to be creative is we have uh, you know fewer resources than a lot of other companies. Right, and did you feel like your was your company management resistant in any way? Was anybody above you saying, "Nah, I don't think you ought to go this way," or do they kind of give you a lot of creative freedom when it comes to solving whatever um, the technical problems are? Yeah, that's the great thing. It's just like uh, you know our our uh, the, our boss is incredibly. Uh, into open source and is a huge advocate for open source software. Um, and generally, we kind of get to solve problems in the way that we we see best. Um, yeah, that's so. great. All right, so let's get into some of the some of the tips you're going to provide during your talk about kind of or or I guess tales about the problems you ran into and how you solved them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a little bit back to the team is a John oh, and I sure. were able to build the prototype together, just us two. Oh, okay. Uh, but then uh, we needed some people to help us kind of push things across the finish line. Um, in particular, like getting things to production. 
uh, it was like, okay, like we can see from the prototype that we can get this to behave in general the way we want it. But now there are all of these issues and like we need to track like what gets done. And, you know, we need to make sure that the system's going to perform over a long period of time. So yeah, huge shout out to our team. Uh, they were they were able to help us. Um, and mm -hmm. it, was, it was a big team effort for sure. Yeah. But um, as far as tips, um, moving from moving from prototype to production, you know, it's like you've got this hacky thing that you've kind of scaffolded together, right? And um, you're not going to, you know, build a bridge that crosses the river, you know, um, it just by kind of laying pieces of wood down. It takes like a little bit more design work. You have to kind of backtrack a little, make sure that you've got a good foundation, that things are going to stand up the test of time. And uh, a big area of that is like anytime you put a workload into a distributed system, you need very good tools to show you what's happening. Right? So you'll hear people talk about monitoring or observability, incident response. And like gathering that data is a, a huge task. But luckily, there's some good tools in the community. And um, we were able to consume some excellent work from the CoreOS team. Um, that's called a Coop Prometheus. So Coop Prometheus is a collection of tools uh, from, say, the Prometheus and Grafana projects, as well as a, uh, a community-contributed monitoring stack called Coop State Metrics. Okay. And so that is that exports a bunch of things from the Kubernetes API into Prometheus. Uh, these tools were very helpful, and since we were running our workloads in a Kubernetes-native way. Um, all of the metrics about our workload's basic operation were available through these tools without us really doing much of any work. Oh, that's amazing. So that was, it was a really cool learning experience to all of a sudden get that insight into the workload without having designed for it. Mm -hmm. So um, that's when we started to run into issues. Okay. <laughs> it's like as soon as we started to see what the system was doing. And you went, oh, we, we don't want the system doing that? Yes. <laughs> that's a good way of saying that. So what was it doing? We we decided to run some load tests, uh -huh. right? What did we run into? Um, well, the big thing was we started to hit a limit with uh, having just objects in our cluster, right? So we started out using this this uh, Kubernetes job object, uh, which seemed fairly straightforward, right? We're doing a sort of short running or fairly long running job we don't know um, that needs uh, a series of containers to do some different things like calculate BPM key. Um, do some encoding on some of our PCM data. Update um, databases. Update databases, all of this uh, stuff. Authentication. Um, but we, we started to run into issues where we were basically just saturating the, the, the Kubernetes API in some sense. Um, we thought maybe, uh, and why we mentioned etcd is we thought maybe it had something to do with etcd. Um, but as more and more, you can imagine, we have a catalog of something like uh, 9 million tracks at the time or whatever. You can imagine like trying to put that many jobs into the cluster, uh, it started to degrade a little bit. And even as we were trying to periodically garbage collect and clean things up, it was just getting slower and slower to do that. So we would kind of have this cascading problem of like, OK, we can't delete fast things fast as fast as they're coming in. And everything would just kind of halt and just oh. grind and stop. Um, so that was kind of a big source of confusion for us, is to figure out how to manage that. You know, We were able to. Um, you know, we could send like 10,000 jobs into the cluster. They would all run. Everything was fine, right? But we noticed. But 9 million? Not yeah, so much. Yeah, I mean, um, 
Yeah, nine million, and this was over the course of I think that whole catalog ended up with with various outages that we had in our data center and stuff. I think it ended up taking us sixty days or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was, right. I think it was about sixty three days of runtime. Sixty three days of runtime. We had yeah. we had to take a short outage uh, for some unrelated reason, storage cluster issues and things like that. Um, yeah, so it was like you know. Load testing is one thing, but doing it over a prolonged period of time is really where you start to see these uh, kind of anomalies pop up and these things that you don't expect to see. Um, so that was an important lesson for us. So how did you fix it? Uh, we we basically introduced um, there. I guess now in Kubernetes one twelve, there's automatic garbage collection of jobs. We haven't looked into this yet. It's like a, I think it's in alpha right now. Um, so that, that may alleviate some of our problems, but what we ended up doing is we basically set our own ob object limit uh, in our system that said if there's, uh, say, a thousand pods already in the cluster, we're not going to submit any more workloads. Uh, and that was able to put a limit on, on how much we had running at one time. And then we have additional things that kind of check in using Kubernetes cron job. We wrote some small Go programs to take all of the good jobs, get rid of them, because that's a successful, right. uh, a successful unit of work, and then all of the bad jobs. Uh, say if there was, you know, a non-normal exit code or an API failure, uh, we would take the messages that from the queue. Uh, we'd annotate the jobs, and basically we could unpack the jobs and then put them back into another queue where we put all of the dead stuff. <laughs> yeah. And uh, oftentimes there was nothing. a big bucket of problems over yeah. here. <laughs> you know, I mean, once you run. You know, a million things through the cluster. You know, you end up with two thousand of those, or you know, a hundred of those, or something. Yeah. So you got to go figure out what to do with them. Yeah. Sometimes just resubmitting them back into the cluster. They were just transient failures. Or, and help know. me understand: is this happening in the cloud, or is this happening in your data center? This is in our data center. It's in your data yeah. center. Okay. But because it's on Kubernetes, it's a very portable system. Right. Um, and um, we were actually able to implement pluggable storage backends using a lot of the pods API. Um, so just putting in different volume mounts or mounting secrets and then maybe changing a feature flag, it'll now write to both NFS and Google Cloud or just Google Cloud or, yeah, read from here, write to there. <laughs> yeah, we, we basically an anticipated moving into um, we're Google Cloud customers, so we were anticipating moving into Google Storage at some point. But you can imagine, like, you can't immediately move a petabyte of data um, you know, like no. without it, with all, you know, we have a lot of other systems that are using that data in the data center. Yeah. So we kind of designed this system with the intent of um, being able to read and write from both our NFS cluster and what we have in, in GCS, and it ended up outworking really well. And the other stuff you ran into, I have to assume that wasn't the only challenge. There were some smaller issues. We'll be covering these in detail in the talk, uh, but we had some issues with our monitoring stack. Um, one of them is actually with a core Kubernetes component. Uh, there is a server that runs as part of the Kubernetes control plane called the Kube Controller Manager. Okay. And um, it's not a runtime critical bug, but when you have that many objects going through your API, the controller manager takes metrics on every single object. And it doesn't seem to prune the list. And so the list grows, and it grows. And after about two hours of operation, um, that list takes a really long time to return to the client. So in this case, the client is Prometheus. And Prometheus will only wait so long before it considers it a timeout. And uh, basically, it's not pr practical, and we don't have a, a 
a sustainable solution right now in our cluster to get metrics from that component of Kubernetes. And uh, it's something that we'll probably need to look to, into and file an issue for, unless somebody's already fixed it. But. Yeah, I think the other problem that we're still working on solving with the system is like more fine-grained uh, observability. Um, so we're looking into, obviously, these are ephemeral workloads. Um, so we're looking into the Prometheus push gateway to send metrics to so that we can keep that stuff and retain it. Um, I, I think there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of auditing our system over long periods of time. Uh, we're, we're not retaining uh, as much data statistics on how long encoding takes and these different kinds of workloads yet. I think it's been a very valuable learning experience for our team to learn to operate and build the workload in this way. And uh, we can take you know, a lot of these lessons in terms of monitoring uh, and dynamically creating workloads in Kubernetes you know, using a program uh, and apply those to other problem-solving abilities. And um, in general, kind of level up our, our capacity to solve the business needs of our organization. Yeah, clearly you guys are already employing whatever, you know, your skill sets to solve problems on site. It makes me wonder, are you Kubernetes contributors or are you guys end users, just and strictly end users right now? So uh, I'm a member of the SIG cluster lifecycle. Oh, okay. Um, and it, that's, you know, been a really cool engagement. I met some folks uh, with Weaveworks, actually. They were uh, instrumental, really, in helping me contribute to the project. Just some good support. Uh, Paris Pittman, as well, has done an amazing job providing the proper avenues for people to receive mentorship to level up in their contributions. And I have a huge thank you to her and her program. Um, all of the members who uh, were mentoring with the, the cohorts. You know, it's it's been a really cool place to build camaraderie and meet people from every time zone of the world. I would think, you know, it would almost be natural to just start being involved in that way because if you're solving the problem for yourself, somebody else is either encountering it right now or is going to encounter it. And uh, so it would make sense, I, I imagine, to go ahead. I'm going to solve it for you guys, too. I'm going to help solve it. We actually had a, a member of our team join this year uh, mm -hmm. purely because of the Kubernetes contributor workshop that I gave in Denver. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I, I, I held a meetup in Denver, and uh, he showed up and ended up joining our team. Uh, it's his big goal to get his first patch in. So, nice. very exciting. Uh, you, you actually have some typo fixes as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more, more just kind of, uh, yeah, little things. Um, there's, there's a wish, li wish list there of, of contributions. I think most of what I ran into was around um, Helm charts for, for various uh, software, pieces of software we were using. We actually found some typos in the jobs API as well that need to be fixed. So there'll be patches incoming for that. Awesome. Yeah. So you guys have talked, we've obviously focused on Kubernetes here, since that's partly what your talk's going to be about, or mostly. Mm -hmm. But as you know, under the CNCF umbrella, there's a lot more, right? It's, it's the cloud native, you know, con as well. Um, what other projects uh, that are part of CNCF are either interesting to you um, or that you're already using? I, you mentioned Prometheus. Yeah, Prometheus but, has been absolutely instrumental in our ability to understand our workload we wouldn't have been able to find most of the bugs in our system. And it, the project may have been a failure without the instrumentation that was provided uh, as a result of using Prometheus and Grafana together. So that's a, that's been hugely valuable. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a, a larger effort of evangelism happening right now from the infrastructure team just to get everybody to use Prometheus um, and just understand how to observe their systems in production. Um, so yeah, I think that's a huge one. 
operating Prometheus comes with its own set of challenges as well, and we're only just on the beginning of that path of really understanding how to query and um, make our our storage engine, you know, that's backing Prometheus sufficient. But, and then we are users of uh, well, we tried to use Fluentd. Uh, yeah, we you know we had some issues with Fluentd on GKE, and we don't know why that is, but in general, it's a pretty solid product. Um, we're using a lot uh, Logstash right now, hooked up to Elasticsearch. Uh, that's been working okay. I saw uh, Grafana launched this uh, logging stack called Loki. Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like a Prometheus, or an, kind of like an Elasticsearch for logs. Right. So that looks uh, yeah. really interesting. Uh, and we we do use Rook uh, in our data center. Oh yeah. So that's that's, a, that's an incubator project. Yeah, and, and you know it, it it works fairly well because we forget it's there. Right? That's, that's like, good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when it gets boring, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that is our our storage the, uh, engine in, in the data center for Kubernetes at least for stuff we do there. Compliments to the Rook team as well uh, for being available on Slack to answer questions about installation. So. Nice, good community members. Mm -hmm. What about etcd? I saw mention of that in your, in your uh, abstract, and it certainly, you know, it, it was talked about during the, the uh, keynote yesterday. And yeah, Brandon's keynote was, and uh, gosh, who was he up there? With? He's going to be on later this week. Yeah, oh. I'm interviewing him tomorrow morning, actually. So, Brilliant. yeah. Um, are you guys using that? Yeah, so we're only using it in the capacity that it backs um, not only Kubernetes in our cluster, but we are actually also currently using the same etcd for our Calico data store. He's going to go deeply into what etcd does, but for our audience, for anybody who doesn't know, mm -hmm. can you just give a quick summary of what you'd use, what, what its intention is, besides yeah. the specific use you're using it for? etcd is a key value store. Uh, it's a schema-less database, and it does very fast inserts and retrieval. But the coolest thing that etcd does, uh, does is that it's a consistent value store. And so you can have multiple etcd clusters. Uh, Brandon calls it a homogenous cluster of nodes uh, in that they're all the same. And they're all just members of basically a, a community of decision makers. And they all elect a leader. And they use this consensus protocol. It's very you know, simple to implement and understand. And Basically, the leader allows the cluster to have a agreed-upon, consistent view of the world. And that's valuable for something of when, you're, when you're dealing with distributed systems, because then any of the community members, right, any of the etcd nodes, they can kind of leave for a short period of time. You know, if there's a failure uh, with the network or with the hardware underneath the etcd cluster, uh, and every other node will not be confused about who's keeping track of the authoritative list of values. And uh, everybody, you know, can then notify the the member when he gets back. You know, hey, this is the state of the world. And um, so, if you have a multi-node Kubernetes cluster crossing, you know, availability zones in the cloud, then etcd keeps the storage of your Kubernetes cluster or your Calico software-defined network uh, in a consistent state. And obviously, uh, Brandon, you know, went through all of the other successful early adopters, you know, as well. It's been an incredible uh, project. And for the most part, it's completely boring for us to operate. We don't touch that layer of the stack. So, yep. Um, anything else you guys would like to mention before I ask my closing question about you, how you got into tech? Anything else we should know about your story? There's cool things coming. You know, if if you're a DJ, um, we're we're getting ready to change the game again, and you can expect that there's going to be new products and new tools that are going to make DJing more instant, more social, easier, and more accessible for everyone. Are most of your employees former DJs? A, a, a good number of them, yeah. A great number are. A good um, number of our employees uh, are 
still <laughs> Current it's, uh, <laughs> our, our our engineering manager now yeah. um, John Sakis he's uh he's John Tron and he plays probably every week at Beta which is one of the biggest clubs in on this side of the world so yeah wow all right shout out to John Tron <laughs> um, yeah and uh, we have like we have uh, a, a great DJ booth in our office and sometimes uh yeah, you know, sometimes people will get up there and play for a while. Function one speakers, yeah, like thirty feet away from our desk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's great. Um, the last thing I would say about Kubernetes, though, is I think like this has been a big topic in talking to everybody, but like it's still not very good to use for developers, and by good I mean easy to use. Uh, so we're trying to figure out as the as an infrastructure team how to make that more consumable and kind of follow this self service model, where if you're a developer and you need some and some other resources, how do we make that easier to do? Uh, and I think that's going to be the challenge for us this next year. I believe that's the title of a talk, actually. Somebody's giving a talk uh -huh. calling it, like, the big secret that <laughs> Kubernetes is not for developers. <laughs> I, I've heard that all year this year, and, you know, I, I think everybody is uh, working diligently to figure out how to solve that problem. Now. Julia Evans uh, last night also had that on her keynote slide. Yes. Uh, oh, did she? She was yeah. passionate about Kubernetes not being for developers. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, speaking of development, I want to uh, I want to ask you both a question. I ask all of our guests. Um, how did you get into tech in the first place? For you, I know there was some some DJing along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I, well, I think I, I got into. I was always interested in music. I think I picked up the electronic music and DJing actually later. But huh? uh, I, I started playing with computers and coding when I was like 16 years old, and then. I just kind of didn't even think about it when I went to college. It was like, okay, I'll study computer science. And so as soon as I got out of college, uh, I got my first job, and I've kind of been working in the industry since then. <laughs> so, yeah, awesome. My, uh, How about you? My uncle was working at a children's hospital uh, for the IT department, uh, you know, out in LA area. And uh, he nabbed a, a laptop from their old spares for me one day. And I was, must have been, you know, like 11 years old at the time. And that sparked a, a deep interest in like Microsoft Paint. That was that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that eventually turned into habits of like doing all kinds of stuff on the computer that I should have been doing, you know, because it was always hard for money. And so it's like, you know, getting onto people's networks and figuring out about things. And when I moved to Colorado, I found a great mentor. Jocelyn Wen, she's the leader of the program, computer science program at Cherry Creek High School. And so it's a really nice school. I got very fortunate with that district. And she was a huge mentor for me, and I, I attribute most of my uh, ascent into the world of software as a result of her direct mentorship. And uh, that's that was the big pivot for me. Also, uh, you know, internship at DirecTV with some great people who were also uh, mentors in their own right in various areas of my life. And then reaching out to the open source community, I had a, a guy, Joe Thompson, uh, who like introduced me and kind of got me a ticket to my first conference. And, oh, really? Yeah, the next year I, I gave a lightning talk at that conference, and that is kind of how I got more connected up to this sort of community. But it's been it's been a really cool ride. Yeah. I think mentorship is is huge and making sure that we enable a diverse platform and accessible platform for people to, you know, um, Yana Rakel uh, or JBD on, on Twitter from Google, She's uh, she tweeted yesterday about how we kind of have a little bit of a caste system 
You know, How so? In that conferences are really a place where you know people from the biggest companies uh, who have already had an opportunity in the field get funded. You know, on sometimes first-class plane tickets and you know rather nice hotels to attend. You know, a conference with a twelve hundred dollar price tag, and um, that's not you know really an environment that is incredibly successful. Um, on the other hand, Brian Lyles was you know, talking about how like we need to keep looking for a solution and I agree with him. And I I do want to point out that like having a three hundred thousand dollar diversity fund to send hundred and forty people, you know, to a conference is amazing. It's, it's a great step. Yeah, uh, I heard that yesterday. That is unbelievable. GopherCon does amazing things. Uh, and their community is a beautiful and diverse thing. We'll have to try to make it out to San Diego. It's been in Denver, you know, every year, so that's been really easy for us to go to. Yeah, and I'd like yeah. to thank the Linux Foundation as well because they uh, they certainly helped us come out here and give this talk. Yeah, you know, being a small company with no real representation, I don't think you know Bport's ever really been at this kind of conference. Um, it's, it's a great opportunity and huge thanks. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're, you guys are here, and I I think the folks are going to enjoy your talk tomorrow. So. Anybody who hears this before then, just know that uh, John and Lee will be on stage where and when? Do you know your, your room? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's on the fourth floor. It's, uh, I think, in 4C. Sounds three, right. 3, 4. Yeah. Yeah. 4C, okay. 3 and 4. Uh, tomorrow at 2.35. At 2.35. Yeah. Be there, be square, folks. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your conference. Thank you, listeners. Uh, I'll be back soon. 